We continue our journey into joy by looking now at the third chapter of Philippians, the first 11 verses, page 952 in your pew Bibles. passage that is not unfamiliar and yet runs counter to almost everything our society is trying to convince us is important. The first 11 verses. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. You will probably recognize those as words from the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm on again. So where shall I start?
on July 6th. Okay. On July 6th, 2001, those words I read about the land of Uz were the opening words in a feature article in Time magazine entitled, When God Hides His Face, Can Faith Survive When Hope Has Died? Listen to the first few paragraphs. In a subdivision in Nashville, Tennessee, live David and Nancy Guthrie. They have no sheep or camels, but they have a late model infinity and a widescreen Sony TV. They would never lay claim to blamelessness, but they are regarded as upright and God-fearing among their friends, who place high value on those traits. Sometimes those friends compare the Guthries to Job. The odds of carrying a recessive gene for a terrible disorder called Zellweger syndrome are one in 160. The odds of two carriers meeting and having a child who suffers from the syndrome are about one in 100,000. David and Nancy, already the parents of a healthy son, Matt, drew that one in 100,000 chance. When two and a half years ago, Nancy gave birth to a severely disabled daughter named Hope, who struggled for life for 199 days. After Hope was found to have the ailment, David got a vasectomy. The odds of a woman becoming pregnant after her partner has had that procedure are roughly one in 2,000. And Nancy was pregnant again, this time with a boy. And yes, he had Zellweger's syndrome. They knew before he was born. And yes, he would no doubt live for less than one year. Time magazine quoted David Guthrie, the father, as saying, without a couple of bedrock assumptions, None of this makes sense to anybody. You take that away, and boy, it is, it's all bad. Times staff person writing the article said, in Job's 42nd chapter, Job chastened, says to God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you and he surrenders his grievances. Where some readers see defeat, Nancy Guthrie finds triumph. God reveals himself, she says, and in that process, Job's questions disappear. It is the classic evangelical understanding. Suffering is not an injustice nor a punishment. Rather, it is a harrowing invitation to a higher dialogue. We ought to just stop for a minute in silence and think about that. It is 
a harrowing invitation to a higher dialogue. It's not the questions that Job had, and boy, he had a lot of them. It's not the questions that Paul had. It's not the questions that David and Nancy Guthrie had that I want to think about this morning. It's that harrowing invitation to a higher dialogue. And Paul phrased it this way. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Are you living right now in the land of us? Somebody asked me before church where that is. And I said, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows where us was. But are you living there right now? Do you know anybody else who might be? Think about it for a minute and ask yourself, do I know anybody who doesn't live there? Whatever was to my profit, Paul says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You've probably heard that before, and not just three minutes ago when I read it. This is among the most famous of all the things Paul ever wrote. It's certainly among the most important things Paul ever wrote. It is also among the most impossible things Paul ever wrote. This is not about learning how to be able to let go of a terminally ill infant or lose all your cows and sheep and camels or your house or your cottage or your boat or your cars or your profession or your reputation. It's about how to hang on more tightly to God than any of those things. And God knows how tightly we want to hang on to all of them. Paul's about as excited here as he ever gets when he's writing. Verse 8 begins with five little words in Greek that are virtually impossible to put into English. The NIV says, what is more, which makes sense and which we say sometimes, but literally translated, verse 8 begins, but indeed, therefore, at least even. Because Paul just doesn't know how to say it, how to put it into words, how to get going. And, and, he, and he doesn't want to wait to get started. And he doesn't want us to wait to get started. I consider them rubbish, trash, garbage, dung. The message has dog dung. 
And that's the closest I've seen to the word in the original. And what's the trash? Well, Paul inventoried it in verses 5 and 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Any Benjamites in the house today? Ex-Pharisees? Full-blooded Israelites? I didn't think so. And that makes it relatively easy to hear. You've got to get rid of all that stuff. You've got to throw it away. You've got to take it out with the trash. But suppose I changed the words a little to the contemporary equivalent of what Paul was saying. I was born in a God-fearing home. I was raised in a God-fearing Orthodox church. I was and I am loyal to the doctrinal standards of that church. I am faithful to the best of my ability in obeying all the rules, big and little. I was so loyal to my church, I never turned down any invitation to serve. I never skipped any Vesper service. I never missed a committee meeting, and I accepted every offer to teach. I was and am a model church member, and all of that is rubbish. What's more, I consider everything a loss. Oh, come on, Paul. You can't mean it. Everything. He says these words, and we're left gasping for air. I consider everything a loss, not just those things, all my accomplishments, everything. He is serious. He's seriouser here than almost anywhere else, and he wants us to be that serious too. Paul teaches us here to say, it's not my Christian family. It's not my Christian church. It's not my Christian education. It's not my doctrinal faithfulness. It's not my obedience. It's not my loyalty. It's not my service. What's not? My salvation is not. It's not that my salvation isn't cultivated and nourished and strengthened by all of those things, but those things are not my salvation. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Some of us will remember when we used to sing a song about grace that is greater than all of our sin. Paul's singing a song, probably to the same tune, about a grace that is greater than all of our accomplishments. A grace so great it makes all those accomplishments pale in comparison. A grace that is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You may, Paul is saying, <coughs> with all the intensity and emotion his sometimes ADHD personality can muster, you can sit on these 
padded pews twice every Sunday. You can frame and hang your Christian grade school, high school, and college diplomas and put them on a beautiful paneled wall in your den. You can have pictures around the house of your sainted parents who lived what they believed and taught you how to live. You can know the doctrinal standards of your church and understand their meaning and you can have been engaged in every mission enterprise your church ever carried on. But what I want to know, what God wants to know, is if you know Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you see him as your savior from sin? Do you claim him as the Lord of your life? Does every accomplishment of your life outside of that pale into insignificance compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? By a grace that is greater than all my sin, a grace that is greater than all of my accomplishments, what's his salvation is mine. And he is mine, and I am his. For his sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I consider everything else to be rubbish so I can find him and be found in him. Having the righteousness, Paul says, that comes from God and is by faith. J.B. Phillips translates that verse this way. For now, my place is in him. And I'm not dependent on any of the self-achieved righteousness of the law. God has given me that genuine righteousness, which comes from faith in Christ. How changed are my ambitions? I can't make myself right with God. I can't do anything to deserve being made right with God. But I can be right with God by faith. I believe he gives to me, free, what I could never attain or deserve. I believe he does not overlook my sin, he forgives it. I believe he does not ignore my debt, he pays it. I believe I could never be perfectly obedient to him, but Christ was for me. My faith is expressed by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Finding that faith, I find him. But as well as finding him, I want to be found in him. 
What does it mean to be found in Christ? To be identified with him, to be imitating him, to be revealing him in the way I live, to be speaking for him on his behalf, to be acting like him, to be evidently belonging to him. I wish to live in such a way that I not only find Jesus, but Jesus is found in me. My faith is founded on that. Well, Paul has told us what he does. Whatever was to my prophet, I consider loss. He has told us why he does it, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And now he tells us how this can be done. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. For Paul, it's a matter of life and death. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know that, Paul says. Is that your ambition? Is that what you want? Is that what you want most? Is that what you want more than anything else? Listen to Paul elsewhere. He said to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He wrote in his second letter to Corinth, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And in the letter we're studying, he wrote, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Are you willing to live with the cross? Are you willing to wage war on sin in your life and always? Remember, if we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And I also want to know, Paul said, the power of his resurrection. Listen to this. Electrifying news. That was the headline. Reuters carried it. It's about something that happened in Almaty, Kazakhstan. A Kazakh man who was electrocuted and buried shocked his friends and family by turning up for his own funeral feast. The man was wrapped in a cloth shroud, according to Muslim tradition, and buried in a shallow grave after apparently dying while trying to steal power cables in eastern Kazakhstan. Two days later, he regained consciousness and rose naked from the ground, the newspaper said. The paper said he had difficulty flagging down a vehicle to take him home. Something much more amazing, much more astounding, much more significant, and much more lasting than that can happen to you. Can you say with Paul, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead? Do you want to? Is that your ambition? Then I need only remind you that Paul in this very same letter said, 
God is at work in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. And the love that made him suffer and the power that enabled him to rise will help you to know him and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Then very truly, even before you enter it, you will leave your tomb. Job lost everything. Paul was ready to throw it all away. David and Nancy Guthrie lost two children. Job found the secret of how to get beyond it. So did Paul. So did the Guthries, and I hope you do too. I want to know, Paul said. Job said it too, and so did the Guthries. Nancy Guthrie, time reported, has been working out some thoughts on paper lately. Job, she writes, was blessed through his brokenness by his restless pursuit of God. He had a new, more infinite relationship with God, one he could never have found without pain and sorrow. In the darkest of days, she writes, we've experienced a supernatural strength and peace. Like Job, we cannot see often the hidden purposes of God, but we can determine to be faithful and keep walking toward him, even in the darkness. And so, time said, they did. And you? Let's pray. Oh God, help us to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and to attain even here and even now the power and energy of the resurrection from the dead and to know you most importantly. Help us to let go and even throw away so many things that get in the way, in your way. And help us to know through experience that you will never let go of us. That is our prayer. We pray it in weakness but in faith and trust that in Christ you will answer. In his name we ask it. Amen.